you have your Bibles this morning, let me encourage you to turn to a couple of different places with me. The first of those is that worn out place in your Bible, the book of Romans. Mark something there. You may not even need to. The other one, you'll have to find something. It's Job chapter 13. I want you to find that. That's just before the book of Psalm and Proverbs. Romans and then Job 13. Sermon's a little long. I'll go ahead and tell you that to begin with. If it gets too long, I'll stop and we'll do part two. But at the end of the message, we have some babies to dedicate. And so we're going to be here a little while today, but there's no service tonight. Uh, there is men's prayer. Uh, so please don't forget that for you men that are able to come back and join us for, uh, I guess, an hour or two in prayer. It's a very good time. Let me pray. Uh, for myself, please, uh, before we begin walking through the Word of the Lord. Father, we all stand in desperate need as we uh, worship You. We must be animated by the Spirit of God, lest our minds drift off somewhere else, our hearts be drawn to different things, even my own. So, Father, I pray that Your Spirit would rest in my mind and in my mouth, that you would grant me the wisdom of God and the words of God in order that I might speak faithfully to the children of God. And as Jeremy prayed, I echo that prayer and ask that all of our hearts, especially my own, would be very humble before you, that the knees of our heart would be bowed, hungry, thirsty, longing to be fed with the only food that satisfies that of a Christian, and that is the very Word of God. So, Father, help us, help me in my communication, but help all of us in our hearing of the Word and our obeying. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I think this will be the last week that we've spent talking about those essential qualities or characteristics of a Christian where Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love. So this morning, I really want us to dive into hope, and it may be a beginning of a dive into hope, but I, I'm absolutely convinced that we know less about hope than we do the other two. And the reason is because hope just doesn't play that much of a role in our lives anymore. We don't have time to think about it because we're so busy with things of this life and things of this world, we don't think much about lifting up our eyes and looking beyond the horizon and setting our hope in God on the kingdom of God to come. So there's a lot here. And I pray that maybe I can just whet your appetite to spend time in the text on your own, finding out a whole lot more about hope because God tells us a great deal, Old Testament and New. Now, if you've noticed, we've read that passage every week in 1 Corinthians 13, but Paul picks an unusual order. He mentions it in this order, faith, hope, and love. Abide these three, but the greatest of these is what? Love. And the reason that he ends with love in 1 Corinthians 13 is because he's about to talk about love. 
And so just by way of practical application, he lands on love so he can pick up love and run with it and explain what true love is. But when you think about it more from a proper theological order, the order that Paul uses actually in Colossians 1 and 1 Thessalonians is, is a different order. It's faith, love, and then he ends on hope. And hopefully by the time that I get through that this morning, you'll understand the importance of that order. Now, let me borrow your mind for a few minutes and then I'll appeal to your heart. I want to walk through these three things one more time and I'll wind up on love so you can better understand or I'll wind up on hope so you can better understand what hope is. But we have to talk about faith every time we have a chance because people continue to be confused about faith. As it turns out, the enemy or the God of this world continues to blind our eyes to the truth of God's word. And one of the things, I guess his favorite thing to blind our eyes about is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We enter into a relationship with God solely, singularly based on faith in the person and in the work of Christ Jesus. Now, to help you get a better grasp of that, let me give you a list of things that you are not accepted by God upon. We are not accepted by God based on the absence of terrible sin in your life. You're not accepted by God because you have avoided the really bad stuff. You're not accepted by God because you haven't killed someone. You're not accepted by God because you have not been arrested, because you have not committed adultery, because you have not voted for a liberal. You're not accepted by God for any other thing you have not done. And equally, let me turn that into the positive. You're not accepted by God because you have done a great many good things. You're not accepted by God because of your merit. You're not accepted by God because you are talented. You're not accepted by God because you are a good person. You're not accepted by God based on your good looks. You're not accepted by God because you supposedly love one another, or at least you are convinced. You are not accepted by God for any reason other than one solitary reason, and that is because you have trusted in the person, who He is, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the work that He has accomplished on your behalf at Calvary. And if you add anything to that, you've destroyed all of that. That's faith. That's what I mean when I say faith, and that's what Paul means when he says faith abides. You trust in the Lord Jesus Christ solely for your salvation. Now, we are saved then by God. Yes, not anything that you've done. You've been saved by the work of God, but you've also been saved by the character of God. You see, He extended His mercy, His grace, and His love toward you. And let me highlight that love because it was His love that came to us through the offering of His only Son. It was not our love for God that converted us but it was God's love for us that was demonstrated through His Son that caused us to be born again. And as I said last week, the moment in which we were born again was the very moment 
that we were sealed with the Spirit of God. Filled with the Spirit of God. And think of it this way, when the Spirit of God came inside of you, the very character of God came inside of you. And not just the life of God, but the very love of God dwells within you because the person of God dwells within you in the form of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, what abides in the life of the believer is faith. And likewise, what absolutely abides in the life of the believer is the very love of God. And that love does not lie dormant. It doesn't find some particular cell within your body to occupy and wait for a day to break out. That love grows. How in the world could the love of God sit in your life and do nothing? That's absolutely not possible. And so the love of God begins to grow and begins to demonstrate itself in your life in so many ways. And in the very first way, it demonstrates it in love back toward God. And like we talked about last week, that's not so much expressed with your mouth as it is with your life. Because if you love God according to the Word of God, you obey the Word of God. And so one of the very first manifestations of the love of God within you is to begin to love the Word of God. I prayed that for you this morning when I came up here early this morning alone. I prayed that you people would fall more deeply in love with the Word of God. Because if you love it, you'll do it. But it doesn't just stop there. It begins to express itself out toward others. All of a sudden, you begin to extend mercy and forgiveness toward people who offend you. And you go, why would I do that? Because that's the very same love that was expressed toward you by God through Christ. Oh, you weren't seeking forgiveness. You weren't seeking mercy. You were continuing to go your own way. And you were very comfortable in it. But the mercy of God interrupted your life. And the love of God overwhelmed your life and God forgave you of your sins. And now that very same attitude dwells within you. And so when someone offends you, and it may take a minute, right? But forgiveness begins to well up in your heart. And when you don't, you can't even sleep at night. You're absolutely miserable. And you ought to thank God for that misery because that love is not dormant. And you find yourself extending mercy to someone who doesn't extend mercy. And once you get it all done and taken care of, then you sleep sweetly because love has expressed itself like it's supposed to do. But it doesn't just stop there. All of a sudden you find yourself selflessly, sacrificially serving others. And you're like, why am I even doing this? Because it's the very thing that God did for you. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped for himself, but he emptied himself, right? And so you find yourself doing the very same thing in the way that he did for you. And by the way, again, husbands, that begins at home. It grows and it continues to transform us into the image of God. In fact, this is an absolute reality. The primary evidence of genuine faith will forever be love. Period. Do you have faith? Don't ask your grandmom. Look at your life and see if you find the love of God in you and being expressed through you. Now that brings me to the last of these three, and that is hope. 
So where the testimony of faith is and the clear evidence of love is, there is, without question, hope. That's how these three things are tied together. They're absolutely inseparable, and that's why the Apostle Paul says these three abide, and they will until the day that you go home or Christ returns. You can't tear them apart. Let me ask you, is it possible for a human being to have hope for heaven and not have faith in Christ? Absolutely not. If you're about your senses and you've applied yourself to studying the Word of God, it is not possible to have hope for heaven and not have faith in Christ. But what about love? Is it possible for you to have hope for heaven and not have love in your life? And if you say, well, that might be possible, then you haven't read 1 John. You didn't pay attention to it if you did read it, because that's one of John's primary arguments. If you don't have the love in your life, then you don't love God. But if you do love your brothers, then you know the love of God. That's one of the foundational arguments that you find in 1 John. So you can't rip these things apart. God has connected them in such a way that they stand together or they do not stand at all. Faith, love, and hope. Let me give you an illustration that always flows through my mind when I I think about this. And I think about the birth of a child. Because the moment that the child comes forth, what does everyone wait on? Everyone in the room. That initial cry. That initial testimony that this child is living. Do you not understand that that's exactly like faith? That is the initial cry of ours. Oh God, save me. That's our cry of life. And you say, well, isn't the baby alive before? I'll let you think on that on your own. Yes, he is. But we have that initial cry of faith. And once the child cries, what happens next? What happens to the child's lungs? Do they not fill with air in the very next moment? And they go about all their days breathing that air in and out. And it's the very same for a Christian when it comes to faith in Christ. That love fills his lungs. And he lives in light of that love. And when you consider that child, now that he's cried and now that he's breathing, we consider that child abiding in life. And that child will live all of its days until its last breath, right? Well, there is hope. Because when we have that cry of faith and love flows into our life, then we abide in hope all of our days until we see His face. That's where we live. We live in the sphere of hope. So when you think about all these three, just like faith and love, hope is birthed in the gospel. You understand? And if you've been born again, these three things define who you are as a follower of Christ. But remember what Paul said before Christ. I think it's in Ephesians 2. He said, before Christ, we were without God having no hope. That helps us understand hope because if you're without God, it is not even possible to experience hope or to know hope, certainly not even to have hope. But if you have God, you have all hope because all hope is in God. 
And then as Paul taught us again in Romans 8, we're saved, but we're saved in this sphere of hope. In other words, you think you know something of the Spirit of God? Oh, just wait. Wait till the day until the Spirit of God animates every thought, every word, every desire in your life. You think you know something of Jesus? Oh, just wait. Just wait till you see His face. And we think we know something of God now? Oh, just wait till you're at the feet of His throne in worship. You see, we've been saved in hope because everything we hope for, we've yet to experience. But because of the promise of God, we will know them all in their fullness. We will experience them utterly and completely. And we've had enough of them now. We've had that foretaste to keep us walking in faith and in love and in hope. But one day our hope will be fulfilled and we'll know God like we've never known Him before. Right? Let me give you a little bit more and then I'll appeal to your heart. When you study hope, and I encourage you to look up every single reference, sometimes hope and faith is kind of synonymous. So you've got to be careful as you study those things. But almost every single time, hope is found either as a verb or a noun. In other words, when it's a verb, we have something to do. We have something to exercise, something to demonstrate. We have to be active in our hope. But the majority of the time, and where I want to spend most of my time this morning is, hope is something we possess. Hope is something we have. Hope is a noun. It's an absolute certainty because our hope is in a person. Our hope is in God, which makes it absolutely different than the hope of the world because the hope of the world is what? I tell you this all the time. The hope of the world just hopes so. I have no idea, but I really hope so. That's not our hope. In fact, we don't even have a hope without the object. If we don't have God, remember, like Paul says, we have no hope. It's just like faith. And the world says this all the time. Oh, you just got to have faith. And your response always needs to be, that makes no sense. I mean, I can have faith in something or I can have faith in someone, but you just said I just got to have faith and that makes absolutely no sense to me. You see, hope's the very same way. Oh, you just need to have hope. Hope in who? Hope in what? You see, our hope is defined and because it's only in God, it's an absolute certainty. If there is God, then we as followers of Christ have hope. So that's enough to give you to think about. I've given you plenty to think about, but I want to appeal to your heart and ask you a few questions. The first question is, be honest with yourself. What are the things that you hope for? Do you hope for things on earth? Or do you hope for things in heaven? You know, the older I get, I struggle with hoping for health. We kind of get consumed with that. I've already figured out. We spend so much time, so much money going to doctors, just trying to feel better. 
And if we're not careful, health becomes our hope because that's all we want. If you're young, it's accomplishment. I just want to pass the next class. I just want to get a higher grade. I just want to get a degree. I just want to get this job. I just want to get this raise. I just want to get this position. And once I get all these things accomplished, then I'll be satisfied. And if you're not careful, all of that becomes your hope because that's all you think about. That's all you work toward. The world that we live in right now is tempting us to hope for safety and security. I mean, bombs went off in Israel yesterday. Russia's still in Ukraine. Right now, we have the most foolish, wicked, godless leadership we've ever had. And it was a six-year-old kid that got shot Thursday or Friday at school. And if we're not careful, we'll be filled with a desire just to be safe. And then we'll turn around one day and realize, you know, my only hope is for security. My only hope is for safety. That's all I want from God. Here's one that affects us all. Some of us just hope for wealth. If I could just get the checkbook in the black... If I could just get the bills paid and have something left over. If this lottery ticket would just hit. If I were a millionaire, things would be different. And if we're not careful, that becomes our hope. Because we're absolutely convinced if we had more, we could do more, we could be more. There's an endless list. Sometimes we just hope for relief from circumstances, isn't it? I'm so tired of where I am. I cannot do this anymore. Just get me out of here. And the longer the circumstance goes, the longer that we want relief. And so before long, our only hope is just relief and rest. Now, as a Christian... The Bible gives us a pretty long list of things to hope for. And believe it or not, there is a hope that we are to have in this life. And the Apostle Paul talks about that hope in Philippians 1. And we are to hope for the very same thing that he does there. He hopes for a faithfulness, whether in life or in death. In fact, he gives us some words there to help us understand hope. He says, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that Christ would be exalted whether I live or whether I die. In other words, sitting in prison, he's like, you know, my circumstances have faded to gray. And I've remembered my hope. My only hope is that Christ would be exalted in my life, whether I go on living or whether I die. It does not matter to me. Christ be exalted. Now there's a good hope. Other hopes that the psalmist speaks of or in other places where a hope for salvation. When the last time that you were concerned over your salvation? I mean, the church today is absolutely arrogant about their salvation. You ask anybody if they're saved and what do they say? Oh, I've, wait a minute, you started with yourself? 
I don't think you understand salvation. You've what? What was it that you did? You see, when we settle in our hearts that salvation is of the Lord, we might be a little more sober about it. We might be a little more serious about it. And I'm not saying you should doubt it. But even Peter talks about things that we can do to make more sure our election and choosing by God, right? We ought to hope for salvation. We hope for the resurrection of the new life. We hope for heaven. We hope for an inheritance again in 1 Peter. But all of those things that I talk about of faithfulness, of salvation, resurrection, heaven, and inheritance, all those things are tied to one in which we hope because all of those things are tied to God. So the question is, what are the things I'm supposed to hope for? The better question is this, who is it that I'm supposed to hope for? Who? And of course, you know the answer to that. Who is God? Listen to what Psalm 73, verse 23, the writer there says. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Have you ever even thought like that? Has that ever crossed your mind? I have absolutely nothing. We sing it sometimes. We have nothing but Christ. But the psalmist wrote it down as an expression of his own heart. Besides you, I desire not one single thing on earth. And when we begin to understand God to be our greatest need and our greatest treasure, then hope becomes easy and unclouded for us. We finally begin to understand hope when we see God as our greatest treasure above all things. And then our earnest hope in all of our efforts becomes just to obtain the treasure. Because when we become convinced that He is our only need, again, our hope picks up and begins to run because it's not confused anymore. It set its sights on the right thing, the right person. I want to show you some examples in Scripture. Go with me to the book of Job. I had you to turn to chapter 13. I want to start you in 14 because I found this very interesting. I want you to look over in 14, verse 7. Now, if you've been reading chronologically this year, you read this, I guess, this morning. I encourage you to do that. You find out in Job chapter 14, at this point in his life, he has no concept of being raised from the dead. Now, what in the world would there to be hope for if you had no understanding of life after death? Look at verse 7 of Job 14. There is hope for a tree when it is cut down that it will sprout again. Its shoots will not fail, though its roots grow old in the ground and its stumps die in the dry soil. But at the very scent of water, it will flourish and put forth sprigs like a plant. But man, he dies and he lies prostrate. He expires. Where is he? As water evaporates from the sea and a river becomes parched and dried up, so man lies down and does not rise. Until the heavens are no longer, he will not awake nor be aroused out of his sleep. Now what if that was your understanding of eternity? 
How in the world could anybody ever speak about hope if in the end we die and we decay and we turn back to dust and that's it? But look over into chapter 13. Look at verse 15. Though he slay me, I will what? 13, 15, though he slay me, I will what? I will hope in him. Job had enough of an understanding that I have no clue what's going to happen to me, but the answer to everything is God. And therefore, he rested in his understanding that if there's any hope at all, it rested with one. And in his mind at this time, he blamed God for his experiences. He blamed God for his suffering. He blamed God for his loss. Yet, he had enough understanding and enough spirit within him to say this, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. You and I know so much more than that. We can't even begin to measure what we understand more than what he understood at this point. And yet, we forget to hope. Go with me forward to Psalm 42. We walked through these two Psalms one Sunday night, 42 and 43. As soon as you see it, I think you'll remember. Notice 42 verse 1. It's an expression of a longing for God. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? You see his desire? But look down in verse 5. Suffering has become a part of his life, and he asks the question, Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? What is his answer? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. Then look at the very end of verse, or Psalm 43, verse 5. Both of these go together. He asks the question again as he concludes his thoughts, as he meditates on the Lord and his circumstances. Again, he says, Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Begin to see a pattern here. Let me show you one more and we'll be finished. Run over to Lamentations. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations chapter 3. Of course, you know what the whole book's about, right? It's a lament. Judah has gone into captivity. They've been overwhelmed, overrun. Jerusalem's been burned down. It's as bad as it gets in the Bible, right? Notice what Jeremiah writes in, in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wondering, the wormwood and the bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Look what he remembered. 
The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. What's frustrating for us is it takes moments like this for us to remember that one thing that keeps us going, and that's our hope in God. How much better would it be if that was the very first thought of your day every single morning? Not because things are bad, but even when things, when times when things couldn't be any better, you're reminded of the character of God and the hope that you had in God. I would submit this to you. If that was the way that you approached every day, your life is going to be radically different than it is now. Let me read something to you. If you're looking for a book this year to read, I highly suggest A Body of Divinity by Thomas Watson. I'm working through that now, and it's going to take a year. It's so good. You have to read a sentence and then to just sit and wait. But I read this to Paige the other night after we had gone to bed. Listen to him. He talks about God in a way that I'm afraid that most of us don't know. Watson writes, Let it be our great care... To enjoy God's sweet presence. Enjoying spiritual communion with God is a riddle and a mystery to most. Everyone that hangs about the court does not speak with the king. We may approach God in his word and hang about the courts of heaven, yet not enjoy communion with God. We may have the letter without the spirit, the visible sign without the invisible grace. Psalms 13, he quotes, My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. Alas, what are all our worldly enjoyments without the enjoyment of God? What is it to enjoy good health in a brave estate and not to enjoy God? The enjoyment of God's sweet presence here is the most contented life. He is a hive of sweetness, and a fountain of delight. Oh, let this be the cheat, or let this be the thing we are chiefly ambitious of, the enjoyment of God in His ordinances. The enjoyment of God's sweet presence here is an earnest of our enjoying Him in heaven. Do you remember that? And it isn't it interesting for those of you who are recalling that moment in your life that you really, truly enjoyed the sweet presence of God. Isn't that interesting that it's probably been a while since you went after that again? Why in the world do we put that off when we know that is the only thing that satisfies our soul is sitting in the presence of God personally and quietly? You do realize that's the highlight of the book of Revelation, right? When he will dwell with us forever. And yet as a Christian, you can get a foretaste of that this afternoon if you want, if you have time. I'm afraid we don't understand how desperately we need hope. 
The writer of Hebrews 6 calls it this, hope is the anchor of our soul. Now there's something you can think about a mighty long time. Hope is the anchor of your soul. Now you may not need to know that now, but there is going to be a time in your life where you really need to know that. And if you drop your anchor in the wrong place, you're going to be tossed about by the winds and the waves of your circumstances. But if you drop that anchor in God, you won't be moved no matter what comes your way. So let me ask you a couple of more things and then I'll turn to your duty and hope. And again, these are some things I couldn't get away with. What hinders your hope? What in the world hinders that place that's an anchor for your soul? I would suggest to you enemy number one is your own sin. Sin is your effort to satisfy your desires apart from God. And now let's think about this logically. If your hope is in God and you separated yourself from God, what's going to happen to your hope? Is that not like cutting off your anchor right in the middle of the storm? Is that not the most foolish thing you could do? The more I thought about this, I'm convinced, or at least I can make the argument, that the opposite of hope is sin. Because sin separates us from the very object in which we hope. And so that's the very most foolish thing you can do if you're struggling to hang on to the Lord, is to turn away from the Lord and try to take up satisfying your own desires. Second thing. Your own busyness. What Watson's talking about takes time. To enjoy the sweetness of God takes time. And you're like, I don't have any more time. You don't have time to enjoy the sweetest thing of your life? You don't have time to enjoy the one thing that strengthens you for life? You don't have time in your insanity to lay hold of the one thing that makes us sane? You see how foolish this is? To experience the sweetness of God takes time seeking that sweetness, finding the vine, picking the grapes, and enjoying the juice. That takes time. And your life is trying to suck that right out of you in order that you might not even have time to enjoy the vines of the sweetness of the Lord. And it's not just life, it's the church as well. What are the two things you hear from almost every pulpit? I need your money and I need more of your time. Because if I make you busy in the church, you'll feel like something's getting done in your life. But all that smoke and mirrors, if you want to get something done in your life, sit down alone with God and seek after Him. And you'll find exactly what you've been longing for. You'll find exactly what you need. And you'll know things are getting done. The last thing that hinders our hope that I'll offer you, and again, we could make a whole sermon out of this, is the enticements and the entertainments of the world. You know, all things shiny 
usually steal hope right out of your heart. You know, I think the last time I was bored was nine. Since then, the world's kept me really busy. I mean, there's just so many fun things to do. So much entertainment. Everything's entertaining. Some churches have tried to make themselves entertaining. But all of that is a distraction to keep you away from the only thing that satisfies your hunger and your thirst. You see, there are some great enemies of hope, and they're dressed up, and they look good, but they're not. There's some things that God has given us, so many graces that the Lord has given us in order to nurture hope. Go back with me to Romans chapter 15. We've got so many graces personally and corporately to nurture our hope, to grow our hope, to mature our hope. The first thing I'll offer you is Romans 15 verse 4. And you might be surprised that you're holding it in your hand. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have what? Hope. There you go. Grace number one, and you've already bought the thing. You just got to pick it up and use it. And it's something that the Lord has given us to foster hope in our lives. And by the way, let me encourage you. There's no better place that I know of than, than the Psalms to foster hope in your life. And you know what that, the reason for that is? Because everything that you and I go through, they've already been through. And by the Spirit of God, they were able to take the Word of God, the great doctrines of God, and apply them to their circumstances and find themselves renewed in their hope toward God. Read the Psalms. And He will foster hope in your life. Secondly, look in the same chapter, verse 13. First of all, let's don't pay attention to the text necessarily as is what is going on. Paul writes, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope. In other words, Paul is praying that your hope and that my hope might grow. The second thing you, you can do to foster hope, it's not going to cost you a dime. You'll just have to spend some time on your knees. It's a prayer that the Lord loves to answer. Lord, I need hope. And I need it fast. And I need a lot. In fact, make it abound. And, and I get a, I get a, if, if hope were liquid in a glass, the picture of my mind is, how much are you satisfied if it's liquid in a glass? I'm just going to hold it out and let it overflow and overflow and overflow. Take a sip and move it right back and refill it, right? That's Paul's prayer. May God's hope within you just abound and run over the edge. Word of God, prayer. Look at the end of that same verse. It is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's 
It's one of his jobs. Now let me ask you something. A little bit of a frightening thought. If it's the Holy Spirit's job, and it's been a long time since your mind was filled with hope, is that because the Holy Spirit has fallen asleep? Or you? I'm telling you, we've got so many graces for these three things in our life. But this hope, man, it's, it's special. God's like, I've done so much for this to have a hold of your life. Go back to verse 4 and I'll show you one more. This one might not make you happy, but it's what God has done in His wisdom. Romans 15 verse 4, Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through, what's that word? Perseverance and the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. In other words, one of the ways that God grows hope in your life is those moments that you have to persevere. In other words, it's difficulty in tribulation. Isn't that interesting? We're hoping to get out of our circumstances and the Spirit of God is trying to work hope into our life through the circumstances. That must be confusing. In fact, in Romans 5, don't go there, just jot this down. Listen to what Paul writes there. We have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through Christ, through whom also we've obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We rejoice or exult in hope of the glory of God awaiting that hope is forward. But not only this, we also rejoice or exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, and proven character brings about what? Does anybody remember? Hope. That's God's math. And I can't necessarily explain it, but that's how He creates it and builds it in our life. Tribulation, perseverance, proven character, hope. And then Paul closes out that thought with this phrase, hope does not disappoint. Because it does what it's supposed to do. We've been given a lot of other things to nurture our hope. The church does. I tell you what, if, if you can find me somebody that's not consistent in the worship, the corporate worship of the body, I can find you somebody who's weak in hope. I don't know how that works. Ephesians 4, I think it is. But it works. This table right here, it's a reminder of hope. Everywhere we look. You know, I said this, I'm, gonna, I'm watching my time here. Tyler, if you wonder what that loud sound was, is my water bottle sliding down the pulpit. When we were with the kids at youth camp, they turned out the lights. Drove me crazy. Silliest thing on the planet. Smoke on the stage, in the dark, we're supposed to be singing to God. Felt like a cult. Looks more like a cult than it does anything else. My friend, Stephen, tried to get them to turn on the lights a few years ago. He turned it on and somebody walked back and turned it back off. He went back, turned it on, they turned it right back off and he had to go up on stage and preach. Got an argument about it afterwards. 
You know why you need the lights on and you don't need smoke? It's so you can see the saints sitting next to you with their open mouth and tears running down their eyes singing praises to God. That's why you need the lights on. That's why you need to be able to see so you can draw encouragement in your own brokenness. Man, we've got people here that have experienced some very difficult things. And in comparison, there's not that much difficulty in my own life. But when I see another brother or another sister who's walked a very difficult road and their head and their eyes are lifted up and their mouth is open and out of their voice just comes a sound to praise of God. Everywhere you look, God is trying to build hope. Pay attention and appreciate what He's doing for you and lay hold of it. Hope is glorious. It's absolutely glorious. All right. There's your mind. There's your heart. Quickly, I'm going to give you some things for your will to do. I'm going to run through three or four, and then we're going to bring some mamas and daddies and babies up here. But hope is a work. Remember, it's a verb too. And we all know men and women who set their hope on all the wrong things. Some set it on personal success. Some set it on their occupation. Some on their hobbies. And I wrote this down because I've seen it more than once. Be careful, parents. Some parents set their hope on their kids and they don't realize their kids are going to leave one day. And then the parents get a divorce. I've seen it more than once. And what's happened there is they set their hopes on their kids. And their kids went off to have their own life and they got nothing left. The lonely one sets their hope on a friend. The hurting one sets their hope on relief. The poor one on wealth. The dying one on life. The forgotten one on recognition. There's endless places for you to put your hope. But for the Christian, the Christian knows that his only hope is in God. And when he has put his hope there, he has found a friend. He has found relief from his sufferings. He has found the greatest of wealth. He has found that which is truly life. And he has been known by all of creation as a child of God. You see, all that stuff that you went after, you find in God. If you would set your hope in him. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, write this down if you don't know it by heart. Peter says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fix your hope completely. You know what that implies that he didn't say? If you're going to fix it completely on one thing, you're going to have to rip it out of everything else. And that's going to be hard for you to do. Because there's so many things that you hope for. But Peter says, don't you dare. You fix it completely on the grace to be brought to you. That's number one. Fix it. Number two, pursue it. This is the writer of Hebrews. Hebrews 6, verse 10 and 11. He says, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope. If we rest in our faith, we run in our hope. Whoever that guy was, he understood. 
Oh, we can make hope better. Get after it. We, we can make it grow. Pursue it. Go after it and you will enjoy it. Two more things quickly. Romans 12, 12. We've already talked about this. Rejoicing in hope. It is your duty to rejoice in hope. Let me give you an illustration I don't think you'll forget. You ever walked in a room with your friend and you know something they don't? And you've got this half smirk, half grin on your face because you're about to tell them what they don't know. And you pause. Now what is the first thing they say to you? It's one word, they say it every time. What? They can tell by the expression on your face that you're about to bust the gut. You're, there's a sparkle in your eye. There's a grin on your face. And they're like, what is it? And you laugh and continue to pause. Then you tell. If we could let our hope grow, we would walk around with that expression on our face all the time. And every time we saw somebody, they'd go, what? What do you know? And you'd go, I'll sit down. It's going to take me a little bit to tell you, but it's good. And you could talk about your hope in God. The last thing is probably the most difficult thing, and that's why we have so much help doing it. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Again, if you want to study about hope, let me direct you to Romans and Hebrews. The books are filled with it. But the writer says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope, Without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You know, that's what the saints do. They hold fast their hope. And like I said earlier, this is what the Spirit does. He causes us to persevere in hope. And then He tells us, you must persevere in hope. And so we do. So we said it. We pursue it. We rejoice in it and we persevere in it because there is a great reward for those who have hope. In fact, I don't even have the words to describe it. But if you're a Christian, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Our reward for hope is incomparable, right? I think most of you are probably where I was this morning. Let me tell you what, I ha what happened and then we'll pray and, and we'll be finished. I got here early this morning, usually do, come to pray. Got my backpack on my shoulder, coffee cup in my hand, key in this other hand. That front door's a booger, isn't it? Just can't get the thing open, the lock's you know, messed up. So I wind up setting everything down, unlocking the door, pick up my stuff, go in the church. So I did that. First place, went over here to turn the heat on. It was 47 in here. It's freezing. Heat doesn't work very well unless all the doors are open. So I started right here and I walked all the way around. I propped all the doors open, cut through the fellowship hall, come back around here, got all the doors open, cut through this door, came in here, laid my stuff down, got on my knees for some time. Once I got finished with that, I got up here and I, and I opened up and I'm going to go through my notes to make sure they make sense. And I walked through them one time and I was ready for a drink of coffee. Wasn't here. Thought it might be on that table, so I stepped down there. It's not on that table. 
So I thought I left it in the truck. So I go back out to the truck. Wasn't there. I thought I must have left it at home. I thought, well, let me look. So I started at that room where I turned the heat on. I bet I set it down when I turned the heat on. Wasn't in there. Started all the way around, walking around the rooms, remembering which room I had to go into to find a garbage can to prop the door up. And I went back in all those rooms. And I turned the hall over in this corner. And that little table just outside my office door was my cup of coffee. You see, I had to set everything down to get the keys out because that door's locked. And I remembered why I set it down and I remembered where it was. So I picked it up, took a drink, and I walked back in here. You know, I think that's what the majority of us have done with our hope. We got our hands full with life and we set our hope down for just a minute because we had to take care of things and we walked off and we forgot it and we don't even remember it until we need it. Don't wait that long because it does take a while to find it. I did get frustrated in looking for my coffee this morning and it did take me several minutes to make it all the way around the church and out the truck and everywhere else until I finally turned the corner and I saw the thing. Now, I bet most of you have set your hope somewhere and you forgot where you left it. But I pray this morning that you'll go back and find it and pick it up. And in my case, heat it up because it's gotten cold. So it's of some use to you. And then you'll enjoy it. And it will be good for the soul.